Uh, the middle of the week and lots happening on RTE Radio 1 today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. And after standing on that island and spending time there, um, I began to understand why a British officer had described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him. Like Languages were absolutely not my skill okay. in, uh, in school and for anyone who didn't do well in school, all that really means is that you're not suited to language exams. That doesn't say anything to your okay. uh, aptitude to use languages in the real world. And that's something that I discovered as an adult when I got into languages later in life. Now, coming up next on the programme, recognising pain in your vet, in your pet rather, <laughs> vet Sarah Boland will be here and hopefully she's not in pain. And we'll start with the live line and the inspirational Brendan Lewis, Benny to his friends. He's a polyglot and speaks many, many languages. Uh, Brendan Lewis, Benny, yes, sir. Was at, at the weekend I was listening to a TED talk about how to learn new languages. It was fascinating. But uh, in it, the uh, TED talk giver mentioned an Irishman called Benny. That was the only information she gave, the Irishman called Benny, who she said at that stage could speak 10 languages. Uh, even though when he left school in Ireland, having studied Irish, Benny, for 15 years, he didn't seem to be fluent in um, Irish. But uh, we tracked Benny down, our intrepid team here. And Benny, Benny Lewis, where are you now? Uh, hello, how are you doing? I'm talking to you from Seoul, Korea at the moment. OK, and there is a delay. Tell us how many languages with various degrees of competency, Benny, can you can you engage in? My best languages would be Portuguese, Spanish and French. I could probably work as an engineer in those languages. Wow. And I've got Italian, German and Esperanto. And I could have uh, very competent conversations in those. Yeah. And then finally, I'd add Mandarin, American Sign Language, Irish, Korean and Catalan. And if I'm talking to a patient speaker, I can have decent conversations. So we're getting up to 10, 15, 20 languages. I, you... I had others that I, d- I dabbled in, but, you know, it's you have to maintain them or you lose them. OK, now, uh, by the way, is there anyone in the world speaking Esperanto anymore, apart from you? I... I... I actually started this year in a small village in Germany at an Esperanto gathering with uh, 200 people. It's it's like the easiest language in the world to learn, especially if you know a couple of other Latin languages. So I just learned it for fun. It didn't give it didn't it wasn't a lot of effort. So I figured, why not? And would you explain, Benny? There's a little bit of a delay. Would you explain just to stick to Esperanto for a minute? Because a lot of people have never heard of it, younger people especially. What is Esperanto? Who invented it? And what what are the benefits of it? And why did it never? T- what? Why, Benny, did it never take off? Yeah. So Esperanto was created in the late 1800s by this guy, a Polish guy called Zamenhof. Okay. And he created it because at the time, French was essentially the international language, the lingua franca. Okay. And he didn't like that it was unfair if you're not a native French speaker. It's essentially the same problem we have nowadays, that if you're not a native English speaker, then it's not fair that you have to learn this somewhat complicated language that is not your own, but it's the international language. So he thought it would be more fair if there was a neutral second language and he created it from scratch and intentionally made it the easiest language in the world. And it actually started gaining a lot of traction uh, over time, but various things uh, worked against it. So at the time, uh, modern Hebrew didn't actually exist. 
So a lot of different Jewish communities started to use Esperanto to communicate between each other. And that was a problem because that was leading up to the Second World War. And there were actually Nazi campaigns against Esperanto speakers wow. uh, because of that connection. Wow. So it lost a lot of momentum, mainly because of that. But to this day, it's it's uh, it spans back a little bit. Like I said, there's uh, communities that meet up. Um, I believe there's actually more articles on Wikipedia in their Esperanto version than there are in the Arabic ver- version, if you believe that. Okay, and is there, is there an Esperanto Institute? Is there an Esperanto? Um, not not an, kind of officially, yeah. Like there are European Common Framework exams that you can take in all of the European languages. And they have an equivalent one for Esperanto. It's just, it doesn't have any kind of, um, you know, significance in the job market. Okay. It's just more of a hobbyist thing that people would go for. And how would you, I'm not going to put you on the spot over languages except this one. Um, how would you say in Esperanto, today is a lovely day and I'm looking forward to the summer? Hodiao estas tre bella tago kai mi antau joyas la someron. And how would you say that in German? So you... Heute ist ein sehr schöner Tag und ich sehe die Sommer sehr vor. Haven't used my German in a while, so that's a bit more rusty. <laughs> Portuguese. Hoje é um dia muito lindo e estou ansioso para que venha o verão. French. And uh, I, I could probably do, <laughs> probably do all the languages, but it's really hard for me yeah, to know, turn the gears you, and switch them. I'm going to make more, more mistakes. Well, I, I just no. Okay, Benny, go back to where we're doing. You know, today is the first day of the leaving cert here in Ireland. We never do the leaving cert on Liveland. They're under enough pressure. But just as a bit of, a, a bit of uh, uh, relevancy or topicality, how did you do in your leaving cert in Irish, which you studied for? like the rest of us, 12, 13 years, mm-hmm. or the subject you took in your leave insert, the language subject, which was German, I think. Uh, German for me. And yes. how did you do in so your leaving, I Benny? Had to drop down, I had to drop down to pass Irish for the leaving, and I think I got a B in it. And then for German, I still did the honours, but I only got a C in that. Um, and I ended up studying engineering at UCD. So... Like languages were absolutely not my skill okay. in uh, in school, and for anyone who didn't do well in school, all that really means is that you're not suited to language exams. That doesn't say anything to your okay. uh, aptitude to use languages in the real world, and that's something that I discovered as an adult when I got into languages later in life. That's Benny Lewis on the live line with Joe Duffy. And it's that time of year again. Junior and Leaving Cert exams begin and students are feeling the pressure. 130,000 students are sitting down for their Junior and Leaving Cert exams this morning and there are just as many nervous parents, I'm sure, who are waiting at home. So how can you help your child navigate this really challenging time and what should they be prepared for as they enter into exam season? I'm joined by Career Guidance teacher Donna O'Mahony who's here to chat through those last-minute tips and advice both for students and parents. Donica, you're very welcome. Thank you for being here. I mean, the pressure's really on because for many uh, students, this is their first experience of a state exam, isn't it? Because yeah. of what happened over the last few years. So junior certs and leave certs, this is their first ever state exam. 
uh, and it's record numbers as well as you were saying so over 135,000 students sitting Leaving Cert LCA Leaving Cert Applied and Junior Cert so record number of parents under pressure this morning as well yeah, It's just really hard for them not to be anxious you know we say to them oh you know take it easy you've got the work done You know, all of these platitudes yeah. but it's really difficult in the moment to stay calm isn't it? It really is and it's a hard thing to do but I was I met some students this morning I think they were more excited and nervous they were really keen to get started and it's a nice way to start with English Paper 1 it's not too demanding with regards to study uh, so I think once they get the ball rolling uh, it's not too bad the rest of the exams kind of come as they but like you said there has been two years of working in school towards this and homework is study. I know students get panicky and think, I haven't done enough, but you have really because there's two years of work behind you. And the papers are being corrected online. So in a practical uh, way, what do students need to be aware of? Yeah, so... All the exams are scanned now and sent to the examiners. Uh, so when the papers are examined, re- or scanned, it really only picks up blue and black pen. If you're writing in red and green pen as part of your answer or gel pens or pencils or anything like that, it's not going to be picked up on the exam. So it's important that it's only blue and black pen, just your standard blue and black pen. It doesn't have to be anything uh, um, fancy. Again, no highlighters are picked up uh, if that's part of your answer. And certainly you can highlight all you want because students were concerned Am I not allowed to use a highlighter to mark my questions or anything? Absolutely. But if it's part of your answer, it's not going to be picked up. Okay, that's very important to know about all of that. Well, what happens if I go into the exam hall, I open the paper and something that I absolutely did not expect is on there? Strategy. What do I do? Yeah, well, you know, I I see a lot on social media where people are giving out predictions and I think it's a very dangerous thing to to tell students this is what we're predicting is going to come up because there's absolutely no way you can predict that and then students do get nervous when these predictions don't come up. What I would say is really take your teacher's advice because I don't think any teacher's out there saying this is definitely going to come up and really prepare yourself for anything. If it does, you're just going to have to stop, just relax for a few seconds and really focus on the question because more often than not or more than likely you've done it in class and you just have to rejig that memory. Yeah, you have to drag something up yeah, from yeah. from the back of your mind somewhere because yeah. it's probably in there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You've covered all this with your teacher. Teachers are great and they know what's going to come up. Well, sorry, they don't know what's going to come up but with regards to that, they don't know what's going to come up. So they'll have you well prepared. So kind of stay more with the teacher's advice rather than predictions and social media. What do you do on the days that you don't have an exam or the afternoon when you don't have an exam? I think downtime is so important. It's really, really important. Get your downtime. Give that brain a rest. Physically and mentally, the Leaving Cert and Junior Cert is very taxing. You know, you've an intense two, two and a half weeks. So you need your downtime. You need to rest your brain. Um, you know, watch your Netflix, watch some TV, hang out with friends, go for a walk. Uh, all of those things. I would, for the sake of two and a half weeks, I'd keep it uh, as low as possible. Yeah, you see... You're asking people to believe in themselves that they have the work done. But most people won't believe that. You know, they'll feel I don't have the work done or there'll be certain things. We think about Irish, for example, I haven't done this, I haven't done that and I need to go back and and look over it again. Are you saying they shouldn't do that? Well, absolutely. You you, you continue with your study, but just be aware of the amount of study you're doing. For some reason in academic circles, if you're not waking up at eight o'clock in the morning and studying until eight o'clock at night, you're not doing enough. Really, we only have deep focus focus for about four hours maximum. So if you've done an exam for two and a half hours and you want to do something that afternoon, give it an hour and a half, two hours max, but 
don't forget your downtime as well, your walk and your exercise and hanging out with friends, just so, important. And using that time wisely, if you're going to do two or three hours of study, is the best thing to do to look back over papers? Exactly. Papers. You're only rejogging that memory. You've built the muscle memory already. Now it's just recalling that information that you already know. Well, good luck to everyone sitting the exams. That's Dunica O'Mahony from Today with Claire Byrne. Now, Mutiny and Murder, David Grant's latest book is based on a sea expedition that went horribly wrong in 1740. It's called The Wager and David was on the line from New York to talk about the research and writing process for this amazing story with Ryan Tupperty. Well, I've been telling you about a couple of books that I've loved in the last three or four weeks, in fact, both by the same man. One is Killers of the Flower Moon. I'd read it before, but I was rereading it as it's been made into a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio and directed by Martin Scorsese. Fascinating book. But equally more recently, in a totally different part of the world, a book called The Wager, which is also by David Gran, who is our guest this morning from New York City. David Gran, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be on the programme. It's good to talk to you again. We we spoke before because you have written two books that have leapt out at me uh, more recently when I returned to uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. We'll get to that in a moment, David, but I really want to talk to you about your latest book, which I found very hard to part ways with whenever I lifted it up, and that is The Wager. Congratulations on the latest book. Will you give us the potted history of, of the book itself and we'll take it from there? Yeah, sure. It's about a British expedition that set out in the 1740s on a secret mission to try to capture a Spanish galleon filled with treasure. Uh, that guy was known as the prize of all the oceans. And then as they set off, everything begins to go wrong. And eventually the wager, the magic ship the wager, which is part of the expedition, gets shipwrecked on a desolate island off the coast of Patagonia in Chile. And they slowly, gradually descend into a real-life Lord of the Flies with warring factions and mutinies and murder and basically you name it. What a, what a story. I mean, I can see, I can imagine you you've, you're coming across this for the first time and thinking, OK, I need to go down this rabbit hole and find out who these men were, what their story was. And I think it's, it's the, it was the sell for me was that they all they, off they went on their travels and two years later, this, this glorified raft washing up on the shores of Brazil with 30 of the original 250-odd crewmen. We'll, we'll get into the story in a second, but tell us, how did you stumble across this gem? Yeah, so I uh, was doing some research on mutinies, and I happened across a 18th-century account written by John Byron, who had mm. been the 16-year-old midshipman when the wager set off. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he would later go on to become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, whose poetry was greatly influenced by this very account I was now holding and reading. And um, it was interesting because the account was written in kind of this old, slightly stilted prose. The S's were printed as F's. But um, as I was reading, I just kept being held spellbound by these descriptions of the expedition coming around Cape Horn and facing what Byron called the perfect hurricane and then scurvy and shipwreck and cannibalism. Um, and so that was really what got the first hooks into me. I realized that this was one of the more extraordinary stories of the sea and of survival that I'd ever come across. What you do so well in, in your books is you you find what feels like some, it's like somebody took this big historical jigsaw and just threw it over the floor and you just have to go in there and 
methodically pick every piece and put it back together and find which, which, which piece should go into the other. And to do that, your research, your impeccable research, takes you to all sorts of places. Did you, did you find yourself looking at documents that hadn't been maybe seen in, in hundreds of years? Well, it's hard to know who looked at these things before, but the story is definitely largely forgotten outside of, you know, a small circle of kind of British naval historians and buffs. So, um, and I went to Kew for the British uh, National Archives and the Greenwich Maritime Museum, and you can, you know, there is a surprising trove of these primary materials that still exist. It's almost a miracle. I mean, these these documents survive typhoons and tidal waves and shipwreck, and you get them on this box and you open them up and you suddenly you know you breathe in a cloud of dust and they're kind of breaking apart and you have to lay them on these pillows and you begin to turn the pages gently and um what is amazing is you can, based on these logbooks and diaries and journals and muster books, really reconstruct what happened um on a day to day basis very vividly. When you look at this this story and and they, they they eventually become shipwrecks and they get on the island and we've talked about as you say Lord of the Flies, it it is society as a, as as a whole seen through the prism of a small bunch of men and how they are so conditioned to be loyal to the hierarchy of society as it were and you you seem to get a not a joy out of it, but certainly your observations are, are are very, very sharp on how that society sticks despite the circumstances. And then obviously yeah. eventually the crumbling of it. Yeah. I mean, what's so interesting is they all, you know, they're part of a, you know, a naval world and a naval ship, which is in many ways uh, a floating civilization. Um, it's very regimented and hierarchical and has its own rules and regulations. And then when the ship, this world of theirs, disintegrates, when it smashes onto rocks and begins to break apart, and they find themselves on this island, um, suddenly that old civilization is kind of broken apart. So they, they need to kind of figure out how to live. And initially they try to kind of reconstruct this kind of imperial outpost governed by the same rules and regulations and the same hierarchy with the same captain that existed on the ship. But as they begin to starve and face more and more turmoil, that slowly begins to kind of break apart. But even as they are starving, as you say, they are very conscious of the rules and regulations, and they are holding these very profound and interesting philosophical debates about the nature of leadership and society and civilization and uh, and ultimately that final taboo of mutiny. And Ryan asked David about how, after such a harrowing ordeal, the men found themselves in court in Britain. How in God's name they end up back in Britain? just when they think they're safe and the next thing they know they're in a court of law because they need to go through it all again as it were it is it is breathtaking yeah and to me that was the really the the extra layer or the hidden dimension to the story that really drew me in and made me want to write about it because what was so fascinating is not only what happened on the island because it's kind of crazy and not only happened with these castaway voyages where you know they travel some 3000 miles um completing one of the in one case completing one of the longest castaway voyages ever recorded but then some of the survivors get back to england and after waging this war against all these elements, they suddenly begin to wage a war over the truth because they are summoned to face a court-martial 
um, for their alleged crimes on the island. And so hoping to save their lives, they begin to release their testimony or publish their accounts and their journals. And, um, you know, Joan Didion famously said, you know, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live, but in their case, it's quite literal. If they fail to tell a convincing tale, they're going to get hanged. And so what was also interesting is I would go to these archives or, or read these, um, you know, crumbling journals, and they would be talking about misinformation and allegations of fake journals. And then, of course, I would come home and read the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And here, especially in the United States, we would be talking about alternative facts and fake news. And there was something in this weird 18th century story that really did feel like a parable for our own turbulent times. For sure. Uh, but also, doesn't it um, tell you that truth in, in itself as a phenomenon, as, 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 a, as a thing, is frail, it's fragile, and is very often written in terms of history by maybe not necessarily the right people? Yeah. So, you know, I tell the book through the point of view of three people who were on the wager, the captain, the gunner, John Bulkley, and the midshipman, John Byron. And each of them is kind of shaping their own stories to some degree to emerge as the hero of it, to to serve their self-interest. But one of the things that this story really shows is that not only do individuals shape their stories to serve their self-interest, but so do nations and especially empires. And in this case, the British Empire begins to try to manufacture its own mythic version uh, of the sea and of what had happened. Whenever you read about the likes of Ernest Shackleton and their expeditions and how they might name a certain island or a part of the Arctic after various crewmen or what have you. It just made me wonder when I was looking at Wager Island and Byron Island, all these places you you, you went to as part of your research. And there you were in, you know, 2020s or thereabouts as uh, somebody who's had all the luxury of of life in the 21st century, uh, making your way through this island, even getting there sounds like a bit of an ordeal. And the experiencing the nature of the place, you must have stood there thinking, how in God's name did any of this, any of them survive in 1740, let alone 2023? Yeah, you know, it remains a place of just wild desolation. Even to this day, it was remote. It took me, you know, the whole trip took about three weeks from New York to get to Chile and then get a, on a little boat, a wood-heated boat. You know, there were no other boats going that way. And I found a Chilean captain who would take me there, and I kind of glimpsed these terrifying seas. And, you know, we didn't see another soul for days on end or another boat. And the island, uh, which is now known as Wager Island after the shipwreck, um, is located in a gulf called the Gulf a Golfo de Penas, which translates as the Gulf of Sorrows, or as some prefer to call it, the Gulf of Pain. And, and it is, you know, cold. The island was constantly raining or sleeting. I understood, I could begin to understand why those castaways were so cold. They were suffering, no doubt, from cast, from uh, hypothermia, which is, you know, you know, disintegrating bits of clothing they had. And most of all, they could find virtually no food. And when I explored the island, we could find virtually no food. We found some bits of celery, uh, which they had eaten, which had, to them, kind of mysteriously cured their scurvy. It was the one benefit. But that was about it. And, you know, after standing on that island and spending time there, um, I began to understand why a British officer had 
described the island as a place where the soul of man dies in him. And Ryan asked David about his obsession with mutinies. Well, always has her own little pet obsessions. <laughs> and that was always one of my pet obsessions, which is, you know, I've always been interested in that kind of rebellion because, you know, it takes place in a military organization that is designed to be an instrument of order. So what suddenly causes members of it to disorder? You know, are they these extreme outlaws or is there something within their circumstances stances that justifies the rebellion and may even give it a whiff of nobility. So I think that's partly why mutinies always kind of are a staple of literature and film over the years as well. Yeah, because you, you, you kind of, it, it comes across in the book a little bit that it's one thing to be an anointed or an appointed leader, but sometimes when the circumstances change, there comes a natural leader. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, on that island where you have these these kind of fracturing uh, into different parties, there are actually kind of three factions on the island. One one faction are known as the seceders, and they just basically kind of roam the island mm-hmm. pillaging, and they're kind of wild and brutal. Um, but then there are two principal factions, one that remains loyal to the captain. Um, but the captain is a bit of a tempestuous leader who's kind of desperate to hold on to his power, but is missing some of those elements, those instinctive kind of elements of cajoling and aspiring that make, you know, a Shackletonian leader in kind of desperate situations. And on the island is also um, this gunner named John Bulkley. And, you know, he came from the lower to middle classes. He was in many ways the most skilled seaman on the wager, but because he did not come from the aristocracy, uh, he knew that it was unlikely he would ever become a commander of a warship. But on that island, suddenly, you know, in this kind of democracy of suffering, he begins to emerge as a leader uh, in his own right. And he uses phrases that kind of would resonate very you know, later, especially here in the United States, he kind of stirs the men with calls for life and liberty. So that's David Grant speaking about his book, The Wager. And we'll come back to that chat with Ryan Tuberty and David's book, Killers of the Flower Moon, later in the programme. And on Today with Claire Byrne, making the court process less stressful for victims of crime, Evelyn O'Rourke was on the case. For the victims of any crime, there can be a deep sense of shock and anger in the aftermath. But if you're involved in a crime that ends up in the courts, even walking into the courthouse on the first day is yet another daunting part of the whole experience. But there's one charity on a mission to support victims through that court process and it's currently expanding its service to the west of Ireland and looking for volunteers. And Evelyn has been to the Criminal Courts of Justice in Dublin to meet the team from the Victim Support at Court Service. And Evelyn is here to tell us all about it. Very welcome, Evelyn. Good, Good to morning, see you. Claire. Good morning. So you started by making your way to the Criminal Courts of Justice, or the CCJ as it's known. And this is the landmark building, people might know it. It's near to the entrance of the Phoenix Park. Yeah, the really tall building there in Park Gate Street. And it's very impressive looking as you go by. But you can imagine if you're, say, a victim of a crime and attending a case there, it could be a pretty daunting place to walk into because it's the principal courts building for the Criminal Courts in Ireland. And when you walk in first, the lobby is, is really impressive, but it's big. There are 22 courts in there, so it's so busy. And this support service for victims, it is expanding all the time. They're in Tal and Blanchardstown, for example. They're working in many, many other courthouses across the country. They're expanding their service right across Connacht. But the gold bar here, I suppose, is at the CCJ because it has a custom-built victim support suite. And the idea is really simple, Claire. When you enter the lobby, if you've chosen to avail of this service, there will be a welcoming face waiting for you. You're brought up to a private area that's not accessible to anyone who isn't authorised to enter it and you call this place your home during your trial. So I started my tour of this victim support area with Dimpana Kenny. She's the general manager of the service. 
Hi Evelyn, you're very welcome. So I'm just going to bring you into the victim support area within the court building. So this is a discreet area. A discreet area away from the general public where the victims can wait when they're not in court. Okay. And we walk in here. So Dibna, where exactly are we? So we're in the victim support area in the Criminal Courts of Justice. And this is a private area away from the general public where victims or the victim's family can wait when they're not in court. We have a permanent presence here and we share the area with other victim support organisations. There's four private rooms. We will give priority to, say, children who are due in. The majority of our referrals from Angarda Shiukana. So once they get a trial date, they get in touch with us. So our service is free, it's confidential. And it just means they have somebody there for every day they have to attend court. And it's gorgeous. I mean, it looks like a hotel suite. It's really comfortable. It's away from what goes on downstairs. Exactly. And they know they can make themselves tea and coffee. They have somebody to chat to if that's you what they want. leave a bag in the room. And we just provide that emotional support. Then when the trial's underway and suddenly I am being called down, you'll know and will stay with me and bring me to the door of the court and into the courtroom if I want. Yeah, so the Gardaí, when they're referring the case in, they'll tell us what courtroom it's in, what time it's due to start. We work well with the Gardaí in terms of coordinating when they're needed in court. And they could have support with them as well, family members or friends. So we would talk to the victim and see, well, who do you want to sit in court with you? Some of them don't want their family sitting in court. You have people who come by themselves? Yeah. Or people may have travelled. So it means they're not going through the whole process on their own, which is so important for them. They're really appreciative. Laughing the lads. Like that notice board's about to fall off the wall with the weight of the thank you cards. Yeah. Some might leave without even saying thanks. We got a phone call a month or even six months later to say, look, God, I forgot to say thanks. Yeah, you can imagine why they're grateful because that service is there to help people navigating a really difficult, it's potentially traumatic experience as well, Evelyn. Who else would they meet, um, would meet victims and their families to support them? Well, the way it works is that the victims and their supporters there, they're offered the option of using the suite and of having a volunteer with them. And of course, there's no problem at all, Claire, if it's not for you, but the choice is there. And the team tell you that they believe that this is a really liberating and important service for victims. So you can arrive into the suite on your own or with your family. There are also rooms, as Dave mentioned, there for children who are witnesses and the video link area where they give their evidence is there so it's a vital cog really in the system here and the children's suite is gorgeous it's beautifully decorated full of toys and colours and when you enter the suite in the CCJ you will probably meet Sarah Murphy at the front desk Sarah has worked there at the service for years so here she tells us a bit more about this unique work and then Dimfin again talks about the scale of the service so the guards book the cases in with me or the DPP's office could be self-referrals. The family liaison officer or the investigating guard or the witness manager will ring me and just say, we have a case coming up on whatever date. I'll get very little details what court it's in, the nature of the case. Do they need court accompaniment or not? Some people want someone with them all the time. Other people just want a bit of space up here. Tea, coffee, biscuits. It's like a comfort yeah. kind of away from the court is all about the law. This area is very informal. Some of it you'll know beforehand and then you can have walk-ins. Especially Especially with the likes of some of the domestic violence cases we get. Like if someone breaches an order, that could happen last night and they're in court today. We just meet them, bring them in, show them around and we'll just wait for the guard to let us know when they're needed in court. Then when they are, right, Mm -hmm. sometimes they might go down with a few people, sometimes they might not want their family there and they'll go down with the volunteers. So it's down to the individuals. Are you comfortable with people sitting in while you're giving evidence or not? Say if it's a murder trial or manslaughter, we can reserve seating in the court for them. And people change their mind all day. They could say they don't want any 
anyone in court and then they could be coming back up to lunchtime saying actually can I have somebody with me for the afternoon so we do our best to do what they want we offer support we don't force it upon you like <laughs> the other question I wanted to ask you was the pre-trial what can you guys offer to help people be able to show them around the victim support area an empty courtroom explain who's who in the court because most people that are coming to court have never seen a courtroom before but it's good to go in get a walk around just to see the setup and where the jury sits, sits there and they sit there yeah it's really practical advice we don't get into evidence or we don't discuss statements you don't need to know it to be able to support somebody through the process it's all about the trial process it's not about the details of the case Sarah Murphy talking to Evelyn O'Rourke from Today with Claire Byrne And in the afternoon, the wolfhound experience, Catherine Thomas met Wayne McMahon and his very big dogs and a small one. Now, I am told to expect the unexpected when it comes to this show. So when they told me today I would be surrounded by five gigantic wolfhounds and a terrier in studio, who's the only one who is... Irish terrier. Irish terrier, who's the only one sitting still at the moment. I, I was hardly surprised. But as a dog lover, I'm telling you, I am trying not to go into full gush mode and maintain some level of journalistic integrity. Wayne uh, McMahon is here and um, uh, the uh, proud owner, proud daddy of all these wolfhounds. Um, He is in the middle of creating a wolfhound experience and it's going to be some experience, I tell you. So, um, Wayne, it is lovely to meet you. Sorry, I haven't even looked at you yet. No, you're fine, you're fine. That's okay. The dogs are the stars, so I'm just in behind. I'm just uh, there. The The noise of the panting. Well, Uh, yeah, they're they're all large breeds. Yeah. They pant like that, yeah, because they're large breeds, yeah. Okay, okay. So they're not really under pressure. They're just, that's the way they pant. So who have we here today? Okay, so today we've got closest to you is Mac. Mac. Mac is the most sociable one. We've got Brendan. Connell, Connell's, Brendan's Connell's, uh, Connell's the dad of Brendan and Barra. So Brendan, Barra and then Tara is the mum. So mum and Tara and Connell are the the mum and dad and then the two boys are pups and then Mac is here and then Lady Macbeth is the Irish Terrier. It's the Irish Terrier, okay. Sorry, I've just got a big lot of slobber in my eye there. Yeah. They are, I mean, I know it just sounds so obvious. They are huge. Yeah, they are. They're they're just, I just think they're magnificent. They are so beautiful. You know, and they're, 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 um, They command presence. They have a presence when they come into the room. That's 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 for sure. I mean, we are in a small studio, and they are yeah. five big dogs. Yeah. How many are in the pack? How many do you own altogether? How many wolfhounds? So altogether, we've twelve wolfhounds, um, and we have three other small dogs. So one Irish Setter, an Irish Terrier, and then we've one bulldog just to kind of mix it up. She's a bully XL. They're called. Okay. Uh, Daisy is her name. Okay. So can you name the whole pack? Okay, so we've got. Oh, this is. If it. you can, into the mic. Because... Uh, okay, sorry, excuse me. And Lady Macbeth, trying to eat the Lady mic. Macbeth, get out of the way, please. <laughs> so we've got Connell, we've got. Uh, sorry, we've got to start with the two, the mum and dad. So Connell, Tara, then her pups is Brendan, Barra, Lunasa, um, Philo, Dove, and Maeve. Okay. Okay, and then we've got at home, then the three bigger guys at home would be Bran. Um, Koo and Kevin. Okay. And then Oscar is a red setter, Lady Macbeth, the Irish Terrier, and Crazy Daisy, the Bully XL. Just, who, who's this now giving me a kiss? No, that's Brendan. Brendan. Brendan, that's Brendan. Yeah, and they're all named after, we named them after, um, but he's after St. Brendan, so yeah. Brendan the Navigator, you know, so uh, we want to give them Irish names, so yeah. we might as well. And then I loved all the stories before we had the YouTube and all that, we were told all the stories of Brendan Navigator, St. Bridget, St. Kevin. We haven't got Bridget yet, but St. Kevin in the Glendalough. Um, 
St. Patrick and so on. So they're the kind of things that stood out to me. Okay. So, so yeah, I, I think they have to have Irish names. Some people think that can be, I just, I, they of must course. have an yeah, Irish name no, to I'm, me. That's, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. And I mean, they play such an important part um, in our history um, in our mythology as well like was yeah. that something as a fella in school was that something that always well mythology was... started at home from at, at, in, at our home really in school more at home for us and um, it was when we had cassette players and my parents used to buy they had a cassette that I used to listen to at night kind okay. of instead of reading a story you'd get the cassette player but it was also new technology it was a yeah yeah it was yeah brilliant. And, uh, I was so, actually just cho- talking yeah, about them before I, the... I remember distinctly it was Kay Byrne um, a few different celebrities told the story each so you had a double tape. And anyways, but I always remembered the mythology stuff. And I didn't, you'd, sometimes you start, you get to a certain age, I think it's 10 or 11, you start to question everything. Yeah. Like, are they, are they telling me the truth, you know, um, about certain things? You Maybe it's around the Santa age. But what I'm trying to say is that um, when I saw the Irish wolfhound, I just believed all the mythologi- mytholo- mythological stories. I just said, oh my God, it's true. Look at the dog. Look, Colin definitely had one of these. She, it must be all true because they're just like they said they have this presence and I was just mad to meet one for many many years till I eventually got one and when did you get your first one? Um, it could be five or about six years ago now okay um, are you married? just about <laughs> I know I'm joking I'm married to an angel okay and yeah. have you got, you've got kids? we've got two Collins yeah Molly, okay. and, Molly and Marin, yeah and where like where do you live? <laughs> Okay, so we're luckily enough, we, we moved down to Kells, um, I'm originally from Dublin, but we moved to Kells, came to Meath, and bought a Georgian house down there. So when we You've bought... You've got space. Yeah, when we bought the house, it was been rented out to Airbnb. As a tree, like our, our basement is an apartment, three-bedroom apartment with its own kitchen, bathroom, everything. So the dogs have everything, their own bathroom. So they all live in the basement? Well, not all of them. So we have then, because it's a very, it's built in 1790, we have the original stables out the back. And so, like, my whole house is a kennel, you could say, but, okay. but they're usually from the, from the basement right down to the very back to the gate. Wayne McMahon with Catherine Thomas in the afternoon. And on today with Claire Byrne, Vets in Pain. Now, coming up next on the programme, recognising pain in your vet, in your pet, rather. Vet Sarah Boland will be here and hopefully she's not in pain. So Vet Sarah Boland popped into studio to talk about spotting pain in your pet. Now, we need to think, just as I described there, we need to think differently when we're looking at how our pets express pain, don't we? Because it's nothing like how we would do it. Absolutely. There's very... very little overlap really between how our pets show pain and how we do. We're associating crying or vocalising with pain but more often than not our pet's pain is progressive and it can be chronic like arthritis or toothache or back pain and so the signs are a lot more subtle because they've evolved to hide pain so that they don't appear weak to the pack. So we what we think pain looks like very often it it appears differently. So how do they express pain? Um, so I suppose cats and dogs would be the most common pets that I would see with pain problems. Definitely more, it's more recognised in dogs than in cats. Um, with our dogs, we will see things like stiffness, limping, lack of desire to go for a walk or maybe a desire to go for a shorter walk. They want to turn around and go home, less likely to jump up on the sofa or go up and down stairs. Um, sometimes they can 
be just more lethargic. They can sleep more, lick at a joint or be slow to eat. So they're, they're subtle signs. You mm. have to look out for them to recognise And them. is it the same with with cats? With our cats, um, they deal with pain slightly differently. They kind of get more stressed from it. So they can over-groom. So sometimes people bring me in cats and they have bald patches because they've been stressed and they've pulled out their hair or they might actually start to get mats along their back because they can no longer turn around to groom themselves. Um, Again, the lack of jumping up and down or the slow movement stiffness, you can also see. But cats, because they're slightly less um, close to us throughout the day, they might go out into the garden or keep to themselves it's harder to see it again in cats even than it is in dogs. Okay, and I mean, pain can be caused by many different things, but are there common causes of pain? Yes, I suppose there's kind of two categories. There's acute pain, which is sudden pain, like you get from a fall or if they were hit by a car or something dramatic like that. And then there's chronic pain. So chronic pain would be something that most pets at some point in their life, if they live to old age, will experience with the development of arthritis or dental disease. So they would be kind of the two most common things that we would see. And it again would affect both our cats and dogs. Mm-hmm. And it does affect our smaller kind of um, rabbits and guinea pigs and things as well. Dental pain is something we yes. don't think about very much, is it, yeah. when it comes to pets? It's very often missed. Um, as humans, we think that if there was a pain in their mouth, they wouldn't eat. But it actually takes a lot for our pets to stop eating. So the signs, again, they can be subtle. They might start just chewing from one side of their mouth. They could drop their food, start drooling a lot, um, smelly breath, <laughs> things like that. Nice. So if you, yeah, if you know what to look for, they're subtle signs, but they are there. Worth as well reminding us what we should be doing, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to dogs, to guard their, mental, their dental health. Yes, absolutely. So there are some things that we can do in terms of our dietary choices for our dogs. So I would always suggest a complete dry food diet rather than using the tins or the sachets. It just it's designed to crack over their teeth in a way that kind of encourages the plaque to be dissipated rather than to build up. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get additives for their water that helps to break down the starting stages of plaque buildup. It's also important that you would get a dental check with your vet regularly. So at your annual health check, your vet will check your pet's teeth. And if there is signs of dental disease, they will more often than not recommend a dental, in which case your pet's teeth are scaled and polished the same way we would get a scale and polish because they generally can't floss and um, even if you are good at brushing your pet's teeth it's not as efficient as you would do with your own and teeth. You mentioned the tinned food there yes. which people will put in because they feel it's nice and juicy yes. for the dog and they might mix it in with the dry food. Is that mm. high in sugar content though? Um, it can be very high in f- it depends on the choice of food it's, generally it's higher in fat and um You know, it might have the same percentage of protein every time you buy the tin, but the source of the protein can change. So if your dog is sensitive in in its gut, if it it tends to get an upset tummy, definitely avoid things like that. But it's more so the texture of it because it's soft. It just has a tendency to stay on their teeth and encourage bacterial growth. Mm. Sarah Boland from Today with Claire Byrne. And we'll go back to that chat between Ryan Tuberty and writer David Gran. And Ryan asked David about his book, Killers of the Flower Moon, which has been made into a film directed by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, so it's about um, 
members of the Osage Nation, uh, uh, an indigenous uh, nation here in the United States, which is located in Oklahoma in the in the kind of uh, middle of the country, um, who in the early 19th century had become among the wealthiest people per capita in the world because of oil under their land. Uh, and then they began to be uh, serially murdered um, in all these kind of mysterious deaths. And it also became one of the FBI's uh, first major homicide cases uh, investigating it. And again, the the trigger for this story was was what for you? So uh, yeah, I was um, you know you never know what may kind of trigger a story or or, or set you on your way. In that case, I was visiting uh, the Osage Nation Museum and I saw this photograph. Uh, on the wall of the museum that was taken in 1924 and showed members of the Osage Nation along with uh, white settlers. And it looked very innocent. Um, but I noticed that a part of the photograph was missing. And I asked the museum director what had happened to it. And she said uh, they had removed it because it contained a figure who was so frightening. And she then pointed to the missing panel. And she said the devil was standing right there. And uh, that really was the origin story as I tried to understand who the devil was. And it would eventually led me to one of the most monstrous crimes and worst racial injustices uh, in American history. And again, when it comes down to history and the telling of it, uh, sometimes in a history book, in schools in particular, it's not what's within the two covers. It's what's not there at all. Yes, and that was it was interesting because the two books, Killers of the Flower Moon and The Wager, could not be more different in terms of their subject matter and the people I'm writing about and the time frame and, and uh, the nationalities. Uh, but they have that overlapping theme. After Killers of the Flower Moon, I was haunted by the fact that so many uh, people, uh, even in Oklahoma, but throughout the United States, and including myself, had never been taught that history. We had, in effect, excised it from our consciousness. So I was deeply interested in that theme of why certain stories become part of our collective consciousness and other stories don't. And, and the wager, one of the things that drew me to the wager was that it was just a, really a perfect illustration of how it actually happens. You've written, um, and I have a copy of it at home, which I haven't read yet, but it's it's your book that talks about uh, Sherlock Holmes in the title of it. David, remind me. Yeah, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, which is a collection of my uh, stories written uh, for the New Yorker magazine over yes. the years. Uh, and uh, yes, and one of the stories is about the world's greatest Sherlock Holmes scholar who was found mysteriously garroted in uh, true circumstances. And the case was taken up by all these Sherlockians and Conan Doyleans uh, who uh, were trying to solve the case. So this is what I'm bringing it to is, is that the way you write, it, it does make it feel like a detective story. And it's about, you know, it's, I, can, I can see in the Deerstalker with the magnifying glass wandering around the British Library trying to figure, <laughs> figure out, you know, how, how it all came to pass. I mean, is, is, that, is that too big a leap to make? You, you, do, do you love that, that side of the research? I do. I look, you know, I think we are all detectives. We are all trying to kind of figure out the world in which we live, to make sense of its mysteries, to make sense of our mortality. And, of course, as a reporter or a historian or investigative reporter, you know, it's by your very nature, your profession, you are doing that. The, the funny thing is that when I was younger, I loved the Sherlock Holmes stories, and I always thought of myself, I was like, my hero was Sherlock Holmes, is kind of Superman of reason. But I will confess that over the years, I have begun to realize that uh, that, that Sherlock Holmes was more of a fairy tale character. Mm. And we, including myself, are all more like Watson, Dr. Watson, stumbling through the dark, trying to make sense 
sense of things. Yeah, in life and not just in research for history books. Um, just uh, briefly peddling back to the Killers of, of the Flower Moon, um, how do you feel about the film, the movie? I thought they did a remarkable adaptation of the book. I really did. They were um, very true to its its deeper emotions, its deeper truths. And um, for me, what was so important was, you know, the participation and involvement of, of the Osage Nation in the development of the film. And I think when people see the film, they will see Osage actors and hear the Osage language and the costumes and the sets. Um, uh, and the story were all shaped by um, uh, members of the Osage Nation. And for me, the most important thing, the thing that you know I care most about is, you know, I wrote that book hoping that, you know, hopefully to at least address a little bit of our ignorance um, about this history. And I know that the film will reach so many people and more and more people will be discovering and becoming aware of this story that is so important. David Gran, author of Killers of the Flower Moon and The Wager from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the live line, complaints about driving instructors prompted a call from instructor Joe, 35 years in the business. As you know, if you want to sit your driving test in Ireland, you must, no choice, thanks to the government, uh, you must uh, pay for 12 lessons. And at the moment, apparently the figure is uh, you pay between 600 and 1,000 euro. This is mandatory. And you go to a driving instructor. Now, be clear in your head. We're not talking about driver testers. We're talking about driving instructors. They are approved uh, by the Road Safety Authority, which is a government uh, quango, whatever, in charge of all of that. And um, But there was 128 complaints, which given the difficulty people normally have in trying to make a complaint um, to the Transport for Ireland or the taxi regulator, same thing, taxi regulator, whatever, is uh, quite a lot. And those complaints spoke about inappropriate behaviour by driving instructors, primarily against young women sitting in the car, in the driver's seat, and being asked if they were single. Um, they, they There was a story today that one uh, male uh, learner driver was was physically attacked by the uh, driving instructor. One female was told, young female was told by the instructor, handle your handbrake, brace yourself if there's children in the, put your hand over their ears, handle your handbrake like you handle your boyfriend. And the list goes on. Now, a number of driving instructors. Joe, good afternoon. Joe, you've been a driving instructor for 35 years. Well done. How do you become, who, who tests you, who regulates you? Well, the Road Safety Authority tests us. In what way? We have to go through stringent rules. Well, we have to go through a three-part test, and it is stringent. It's a written test, it's a driving test, and then you have to give two lessons for your first, two half-hour lessons for your first, um, the third part of it. And who is... So you can't go through to the the second part until you pass the first, and you can't go through to the third part. To pass the first two. Okay, but who, 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 who inspects you? Who, is there one person, a group of people? Well, it's the Road Safety Authority, and they nominate, they nominate um, the, the driving uh, tester that tests us. I normally get tested in things. And who? And they uh, test the driving standards. You're, you're, you're oh, so it's a driver. It's, it's the driving. It's the same people that would do the driving test. No, 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 no. No, Who it's a bull dam. It's it's a, it's a it's like a fella bull dam. You know what I mean? Okay, but it's one person. There, it's, it's one person, yeah. And he well, there's a few of them in different sections of the country. They okay. cover different sections of the country. You know. 
Have you come across but, anyone yeah. who's been refused? A uh, driving uh, lesson test. How do you fail it? Well, if you're not up to standard, you have to pass um, 12 or the, uh, a lot of components on the sheet. And if you don't come through it, mannerism, um, how you impart information, how you speak mm-hmm. to people, yeah. um, no big words, um, you know, a, a laid back manner and everything like that. And I've always been fairly okay with the test. Okay. They've always been and fair Joe, with me, you know. Do you have to pay the RSA every year to stay as a qualified driving instructor? You have to pay two hundred and fifty every two years, oh, and you I must get your check test every two years. The check test is you must give. You can either bring a pupil to the test centre in Finglas or Ahini, and um, one of the tests will um, test you with the pupil. Now, if you, if you have a pupil, you get your result on the spot. If not, the, the, if you haven't got a pupil, the tester um, access the pupil and you will get a, a result in a couple of days. Okay, but you paid... But it's a very high standard nowadays, you know what I mean? Okay, well then if it's... Uh, which I, I no doubt, and I'm, I'm thinking of yourself, 35 years, well done. But this 128 complaints is a lot. Because people, I'm not surprised. They're not, they're, they're not allegations, sorry, they're not just allegations. They're people who actually took the time to complain. Yeah, so we've all seen the complaints. Well, I read the article this morning. It was shocking, but not surprising. Because, you know, we all know what's going on. And, like, there's testers out there, and they see what's going on. You know what I mean? So what's going they on? They see it What's themselves. going on? Well, we all see the smokers getting out of the car, smoking for 20 minutes during lessons. People going, bringing pupils to shops and doing their shopping during the... During the lesson, people going for petrol. I'm 25 years old. You know, I never brought anyone for petrol. I always get me petrol when I'm finished or before. Because, I mean, if you're charging money for yeah, a lesson, yeah. you have to give a quality lesson. And that's what the road safety authority insists on, is a quality lesson. But, so, you're saying, okay, the lesson is what, an hour? Is it 50 minutes an, an hour? An hour long, yeah. And, okay. they, and you're timed on that as well, you know. Oh, okay. you're, you're marking that as well during the test that you're letting. Yeah, okay, you. but you're not, there's no way of recording the time when you're, when you, no. they have a, a, a learner driver. So, it is mandatory. No, they watch it on it. It is mandatory. How long is it mandatory, Joe? That wasn't always mandatory to take Since 12 2011. Lessons. Okay, so it's mandatory now for 12 years. Has there been a... Because it's what much a lesson on average, do you think? Well, it's 45, right up to 65, 70 euros a lesson. Okay. The big schools can, are charging a lot. And you, just, you, 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 know? pay, you pay 12. You do 12 of you them. Pay, some can pay up front and they get a, a discount. Some can pay as they go. And, you know, it's a little bit extra for each lesson. That's Joe talking to Joe Duffy on Liveline in the afternoon. And on today with Claire Byrne, that murder of the PGA Tour and Saudi-backed Live Golf and Rory McIlroy. It's the news that shocked the sporting world yesterday when it was confirmed that the PGA Tour, DP World Golf Tour and Live Golf are to merge and the announcement came after a year of unprecedented disruption in the men's professional game following the launch of the controversial Saudi-backed Live Golf circuit. Now in a moment I'm going to get the very latest from Gavin Cooney, sports writer with the 42.ie and James Lynch, co-director of Fair Square, the human rights organisation. But first, have a listen to this reaction to the announcement. This is Rick Gaiman and Kyle Porter on the First Cut podcast on CBS. Imagine Rory McIlroy. Oh my gosh. Justin Thomas being rolled out as the tour's punching bag to answer questions on a weekly basis and then get rugged 
by, I, I mean, this, I, I'm not, listen, I like the tour. I love golf. This is an embarrassment for Jay Monahan and the PGA tour. I'm embarrassed. This well, is, it, it's, it's just a gross way to, to treat your customer. Right. This is allegedly a player run organization and the players found out on Twitter this morning. Yeah. Like everybody else, Greg Norman got a phone call two minutes before they announced it on CNBC. <laughs> which is sick, which is just objectively sick, right? So there you go. Reaction on the First Cut podcast. Gavin, I think everybody was just as shocked as the two lads there, right? Yeah, Claire, all this drama about merger and acquisitions was supposed to have finished with succession last week, but there's been another installment, obviously, in the golf golf world. Just total surprise, you know. We the, There had been, you know, I think some people in golf had, uh, believed that at some point Liv and the PGA Tour would have to come to some kind of settlement to coexist because neither were thriving by themselves, but nothing this quickly and this uh, and it all ending so abruptly and definitively uh, as it appears to with this statement in which is the, all the organizations have ended the litigation against each other uh, and have merged uh, sorry will merge into one commercial entity in which uh, the Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund the PIF uh, will be the will uh, pour money into uh, and obviously will uh, will have the chairmanship of, of that entity as well now Rory McElroy is mentioned in the clip and the two guys there saying he was rugged, he was rugged, you know, going out and saying all that he did, defending the PGA week after week. We are expecting to hear from him a little bit later on all of this, aren't we? Yeah, Rory McIlroy is playing at the Canadian Open this week, the tournament that he won last year, and he's due to do press today. I think it's around three o'clock Irish time. He's doing, a, he's playing a pro am at seven a.m. Canadian time, so he's due to speak to the press after that. And I think his press conference is one of the most anticipa- anticipated events of the year, like even more so than tournaments themselves, because McIlroy has been used by the by Jay Monahan and the PGA Tour as the face of the PGA Tour, one of its main um, main points of resistance. Against against the overtures of Liv. McElroy took a moral stance against Saudi involvement in, in golf or potential Saudi involvement in golf going back to 2020 when he said he didn't like where the money was coming from. He resisted an offer. You know, there's all kinds of reported figures going around. Uh, some have it up to um, as high as $400 million. He turned down that money to Liv to stay with the PGA Tour because he believed that was where the best competition was um, and it had that history and that legacy. So for him to be free out uh, by the PGA Tour to defend it and to criticise Liv and dismiss Liv for the commissioner of the PGA Tour then to effectively get into bed with uh, the guys running Liv uh, is, is quite a, almost a kind of a shocking tale of betrayal really. The 42's Gavin Cooney from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time.